With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to him. 10.30 The radio's all yours now. I talked to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. WBZ News Radio 10.30, you are Jay talking. We are live midnight to five. Bradley J, your host, Mark Lavallo is in, and our guest is Robert Bob Allison. May I call you Bob? You may call me Bob. Okay. Professor and Chair, Department of History, Suffolk University, and USS Constitution Museum Board of Trustees. He's got a couple of books. We're going to talk about the USS Constitution. But first, let's recap the events of Rev 250. Yes, yeah, so October 6th and 7th, we had... 100-plus redcoats who landed at Long Wharf and marched up Long Wharf to the old state house where they met with the governor's council, and then they proceeded on to Boston Common where they pitched their tents, and they paraded, they drilled. It was really a great event, seeing so many people coming out to see these troops, and the Lexington militia turned out, and Roach Brothers served them tea on Summer Street, and really brought history alive to people who came in to see it, people in the city having an, exper- an experience, remembering what happened 250 years ago as the revolution began. So this was a series of coordinated events to celebrate, to celebrate? Commemorate. I commemorate. commemorate uh, the, the British days, occupation the days of leading up to the revolution and the yeah. British occupation. Yes. And, and it was fun. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, we didn't know. We were always worried. Is this going to work? Is anybody going to turn out? Or is the boat going to sink? But it really was a lot of fun just having all of these troops and civilians and reenactors really brought the streets alive. And Sunday morning, they tried to seize the manufacturing house, which is actually now Suffolk's Sergeant Hall. And it was a poor house back in 1768. And the uh, Governor said, okay, evict those poor tenants and let the soldiers move in. And the tenants said, no, we're not going to go. And we had a really great, uh, Jim Hollister, who's at Minuteman National Park, played the leader of the tenants. He said, where are we poor people going to go? I was talking to a fellow who um, says he goes to the theater two or three times a week. And he said he had come into this out of an obligation to support local history. And he said he thought he would just stay for a little while because he thought the acting would be cheesy and amateurish, but he said he was really taken with how well everyone did. These people were so into their roles, and um, yeah, it was really a terrific event. Were there rehearsals? No, no rehearsals. We how? were just making it up as we went along. So how did the people involved get so good at their roles? A lot of them do this as a hobby, 
And on Sunday morning, I was outside Old South, and a party of soldiers came along. And one of the guys, he's a sold, he was playing a soldier, but his real job, he's an elementary school teacher. So I had a group of my students there, and we started discussing British tax policies of the 1760s. And it was great because he was really engaged. We were engaged. People were taking sides on this. And here's someone who really knows the story. So it is just, it's a hobby they pursue, and they really knew what they wanted to do and were not trying to overplay it. It was um, just extraordinarily well done. So no rehearsals. We were just um, making it up as we went along. Will you do it again? And if you do it again, will it be identical or more ambitious or the same amount of ambition, just different stuff? Probably different stuff. And I think there is talk about doing it again, making it a regular event. Because the striking thing when you do something like this, um, people who are just visiting the city will see it happening and say, do you do this every week? And it is such a special thing about Boston. You know, you could do an event like this every week, commemorating different parts of history and people would turn out to see it. And yeah, so probably we will do something like it again, but we also are planning other events. Actually, uh, 1769, the Sons of Liberty had a pig roast in Dorchester. So we're thinking about doing something like that as a way to bring people together, really want to engage places that don't necessarily know they were part of the revolution. You know, Roxbury has a ton of historical sites all dating to the revolution, a fort built there, barracks built there. So um, there are things you can do in different neighborhoods that would bring history live to the people in the neighborhood. Chelsea Creek in 1775, in the month between Lexington and Concord, which we all know about, and there's a big Lexington and Concord commemoration on Patriots Day, and Bunker Hill, which happened in June of 75, a British sloop going up Chelsea Creek runs aground, and the colonial militia fire on it, wind up capturing it. Uh, the British sloop was going up there because the rebels were driving the sheep and the pigs and the cattle off of Noddles Island and Hog Island, which is now East Boston. And they misread the tide chart. They run aground. The colonial militia fire at them. They have to abandon ship. This is the first American naval capture of the revolution that happens in May of 75 on Chelsea Creek. So imagine recreating the Battle of Chelsea Creek from the shores of East Boston and Chelsea with a, we'll have to get someone to volunteer their sloop to run aground on the mudflats and have, uh, get a cannon to yeah. fire on it. But yeah, there are all kinds of theatrical things we can do to dramatize this history that happened all around us. Donate your sloop. Yes, donate your sloop. We can. How big is a sloop? A sloop is usually a one-masted small vessel, so 70 feet maybe. Oh. Um, yeah. If you happen to have a sloop that's yeah. just kind if of— If you have even a smaller one, we could use. Uh, maybe it'll cost too much to fix it up, just want to donate it. That's right, yeah. yeah. I mean, they are expensive Maybe you'd let them shoot the cannon at it or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, speaking of the neighborhoods, it, I, was, I was thinking kind of historically as I, I, I like to walk— and I, was, I walked from Park Street as far as I could to work here in Medford. I made it three-quarters of the way. I made it to the Assembly Square Mall. Wow. Then I ran into the Mystic River. and It was dark, and yes. I couldn't figure out how to get across. Mm -hmm. What history happened on that walk? I mean, of course, I'm going by Bunker Hill. You're going by Bunker Hill. And then I'm Hill. continuing to Assembly Square. And we know about yeah. Bunker Hill, Breedsill. Yeah, you know, Paul Revere rode along that road. He rode along the Mystic River. Beneath him, broad, tranquil, and deep flowed the mystic, meeting the ocean tide. 
uh, in Longfellow's poem. And we know that also along the Mystic River, we built ships. So the first real Massachusetts shipbuilding was along the Mystic River. And the Blessing of the Bay was the first ship built here. And tremendous ships built in Medford uh, along the banks of the Mystic. John Winthrop had his uh, farm, the Seven Hills Farm in Medford. So everywhere you go, you can, you're in touch with the past, uh, the native people who are here, the colonists, the industri- early industrialization. You know, Medford was a center for brick making. That's why we have so many bricks in Boston, because the mud was baked here in Medford. And so then Harvard is made with Medford bricks, and rum also was produced here in Medford. And Medford was famous for its rum once upon a time. So there is a tremendous history everywhere you go. And uh, one of the really important things we can do is get people who live in these neighborhoods in touch with their history because they're the ones who will preserve it. What's the, stat- the, what's the status of Boston? That's I, Boston I, that's... in the 1730s when it's a port in the British Empire. You can see Long Wharf sticking out into the harbor. That was the longest pier in the New World when it was built in 1713. It built so that ocean-going ships could tie up Otherwise, they would have to unload their cargo onto smaller boats, have the boat, have them rowed ashore, unloaded. This way, they could just tie up at the wharf and unload directly. And actually, the wharf was built after a huge fire had burned most of downtown Boston, and they used the rubble from the fire to fill in the wharf. Now, if you stand at the end of Long Wharf today and look back at the old state house, you're actually looking the length of the Long Wharf in 1713. Because the, the wharf went pretty much up to the State House. Well, yeah, that's where it began. The water it went out. right up Yeah, that we filled in from the State House out really to uh, the legal seafoods. I'm always interested in the exact point where the water starts. Say I'm in the balcony of the old State House. How many, 100 feet? Yeah, if you're the, looking, to the beach? If you, you'll see Kilby Street. Look across Congress Street, and then the next intersection, Kilby Street, that's really where the water started. And so, we, and I don't think many people picture it this way, but the Boston Massacre basically happened at the beach. Well, there already was a bit of uh, filling in by 1770. In fact, they had okay. filled in you know, a, quite a ways, so it wasn't really on the beach, but it was. you could, probably you could smell the salt air. And there were oyster shells in the street, you know, and Benjamin Franklin grew up a few blocks from there and he grew up between the mill pond and um, the West End. And so he would have been pretty much on the waterfront. Where's the mill pond? The mill pond is what was now what we call the Bullfinch Triangle, the area Causeway Street was a causeway across the mill pond. And then there's uh, Merrimack Street, Haverhill Street, those streets that are triangular that Actually, the apex of the triangle met in Haymarket Square. Okay. So that was all filled in about 1806. So right around there is where Benjamin Franklin... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little... Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Grew up. Yeah, he grew up at the corner of Union and Hanover Street, near where the Holocaust Memorial is now. Okay. He actually had another home where he was born. He was born in Milk, on Milk Street, and that building has a bust of Franklin on it that was destroyed in the Great Fire. So... 
both of these buildings and then Bostonians for 100 years would point out each one and say, that's where Benjamin Franklin was born. And Mark Twain commented, we were in Boston and we saw both of the houses where Benjamin Franklin was born. <laughs> he said, we might have seen more, but we were only in town for one afternoon. Oh, what a wise guy. Yeah, what a wise guy. And the big, biggest um, monument in the Granary Bearing Ground is his parents, His right? parents. He built the biggest monument to his parents, Josiah, who was a soap maker. They didn't have any property. And Franklin, Benjamin Franklin wrote this wonderful inscription about here lie Josiah Franklin and Abia, his wife. They lived lovingly together in wedlock 55 years. And without an estate or any gainful employment, they raised a large family. They brought up 13 children and seven grandchildren, respectively. From this instance, reader, be encouraged to diligence in thy calling and distrust not providence. Well, clap, clap, clap. And then it says their youngest son, in filial regard to their memory, places the stone. Now remember, the, young, the oldest son would inherit everything. So Benjamin Franklin, the youngest son of someone who had nothing, yeah. puts up the biggest stone in the burying ground. The second biggest is John Hancock, the wealthiest guy in Massachusetts, the first governor. The soap maker and his wife have a bigger stone. That's really Franklin's lesson to us about... You know, Diligent effort and honest industry, distrusting not providence. Uh, it's really, that, that is, I, I tell my students that this is the most important thing you are going to learn in college. Now, you can't beat time, you can't beat the reaver, but uh, that message has been there for a long time. It has. Yeah. Like, how long? A couple hundred years? Well, Franklin put up the original stone in 1756 when his father and mother wow. were dead. And, and then actually it was obliterated because so many people came to rub it and take a rubbing of it. Uh -huh. So in the middle of the 19th century, Bostonians replaced it. And um, in, in actually out of as a tribute to the author, Benjamin Franklin, who had run away from Boston when he was 16 years old. You know, runs away. He had dropped out of the Latin school, but Latin has his name up in the frizz around the auditorium as one of their alums. You know, he had about a year and a half of schooling and left home and goes to Philadelphia and becomes the most eminent American of the 18th century. And so really, he is perhaps the most remarkable person ever born in Boston. He does come back to Boston periodically. And then when he died, he left a thousand pounds to the town of Boston, which he wanted them to invest. He wanted them to use this to give small loans to young tradesmen, so that they could set themselves up in business. Like, him, like himself. Like himself, exactly. And then he said, after 100 years, take the interest that is accrued and use that for public improvements. And so in 1890, they took the interest from the Franklin Fund, and the public improvement was purchasing the land for Franklin Park. And then he said, after 200 years, take the principal, and he calculated how much it would be worth at that time, and he thought he wanted a trustworthy group to divide this money up. Yep. So he said, okay, the chairman of the board of selectmen for the town of Boston, the minister of the first church, and the president of Harvard. So he divided up the powers. He said, have them decide. So in 1990, you know, wow. there's no longer a board of selectmen, but there is a mayor. And um, the mayor said, oh, I know what we should do with this. We should just put this into the city's general funds. And then, of course, the president of Harvard said, well, there's no real church, and you're not the chairman of the board of selectmen, so why don't we just give it to Harvard? And then <laughs> the dispute first church, there was a con there were Congregationalists, there are Unitarians, they really couldn't decide. So there's a big flap in 1990 about the Franklin bequest. And finally, it was actually 
the president of the Massachusetts State Senate, William Bulger, who said, well, there is one entity in the city that we know Franklin would have supported because the funds to young tradesmen went to create the Franklin Institute. He said, we should give the money to the Franklin Institute because we know Franklin would have been behind that. There you that. go. That's How much money was it? It was uh, not. It was about as much as Franklin had calculated. I don't have the figure off the top of my head, but it was in the millions. It was a thousand pounds in ni- 1790 invested. You know, Franklin might have. Franklin was very good with investments. You know, he retired when he was in his 40s um, from the printing business. He actually set up other guys as printers, and then he. Um, they would give him a commission because he had helped set them up in business, and he was able to retire. His annual income was about. Uh, two hundred thousand pounds, which was uh, back then. Back then, yeah. So it, it was uh, several hundred thousand dollars today. He was earning, I guess, his investments. His brother taught him right how to be a printer. His brother James was also a printer, yeah. and then James, he they had a fight. They uh, long story about their falling out. But Benjamin Franklin goes off to Philadelphia, and then his brother James becomes a printer in Newport, and. When James was dying in the 1730s, Benjamin Franklin took in James's son and trained him to be a printer. So he repays this. He does. He, he his brother was his pre, the press was shut down for um, be, being uh, for attacking Cotton Mather and attacking the local authorities. And so James Franklin was forbidden to run a printing shop, uh, run a newspaper. So he signed everything over to his brother, Benjamin, who was an apprentice. And legally, he could not do that. Benjamin, an apprentice, could not run an operation. But James signs a document saying Benjamin is free. But he did have a private codicil that said, actually, he's still my apprentice. So James gets out of jail and comes uh, back to the printing shop and says to his younger brother, well, I'm back now. Get back to being an apprentice. And Benjamin says, no, no, this is my print shop. And James says, no, I'm the printer here. And Benjamin says, no, here's the document. You signed everything over to me. My name is on the masthead of the newspaper. And James says, yeah, but we have the secret agreement. And Benjamin said, are you going to produce that in court? Because he would have gotten in trouble for it would have, for yeah, that. And, and this is the infuriates James. It would infuriate everyone. I would be infuriated, I guess. Excuse me? Would you be infuriated? I would be infuriated yeah. because this guy has just smart uh, outsmarted you. Yeah. You know? And, and he's your brother. He's your brother. Yeah, he's the smart younger brother. Do you think he still held a grudge over whatever that fight was about initially? James? Uh, Benjamin. No, I think because he really got over it. And then he does take in his brother's nephew. And in his autobiography, he does call his treatment of his brother one of the mistakes of his life. He calls his mistakes erratum. These are printer's errors. Uh-huh. And they can be corrected in the next edition. So it's not a sin. It's not something, boy, I can see my it's brother. Just, I really it's just erratum. It's an errata. Yeah. Okay, you know, you're such a great guest and I'm such a bad host. We haven't even begun to talk about the Constitution. That's okay. We'll get to it in the last part. I only have a couple of minutes here. Might as well finish up with the Granary Burying Ground. Paul Revere's there, we know. Paul Revere is there. And Who else? His wives. Crispus Addicts and his, his co-victims. The, the other victims. Of the, right beside Sam Adams. Sider, yeah, and uh, James Otis. Um, someone who is not there, though, is Mother Goose. Right. Every day you are going to hear a trolley driver saying, and there you will see Mary Vergoose or Elizabeth Vergoose, who was Mother Goose. Yeah, there is Elizabeth Vergoose, but she was not Mother Goose. I hate to burst anyone's bubble. Mother Goose was a character who dates back to the 1100s in Europe who made up. You know, Elizabeth Vergoose was apparently a very nice woman, uh, grandmother, and she did tell stories to her grandchildren 
but she was not Mother Goose. There's only one, uh, her son-in-law said she was Mother Goose, but apparently he said that in a book that no one has seen since the 1870s. So I guess it's too late to get a plot in the Granary Barren Ground for me. For you, probably. Too late. Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe if you have family who are buried there, maybe you can. There used to be a legend that the um, commander of the Ancient and Honorables could be buried there, but I'm pretty sure that's not Maybe true. there's a loophole. Did you, you probably did know that you can. I talked to the vicar of the North Church, and for a tidy sum of, yeah. I don't know, three grand maybe, which isn't that much, you can reside in perpetuity in some cranny of the North Church. Well, that would certainly be worth looking that's at. It's better than nothing. We do have a long afterlife. Okay. Talk now. We're going to talk about the USS Constitution. Uh, you're on the Board of Trustees for the museum. Yes. Where do we start? Uh, well, it is the oldest commissioned warship still afloat yep. in the world. Built, Launched in October of 1797. And actually, when they first launched, they were supposed to launch it in September, but it got stuck on the ways. They had to wait till the next high tide. When they were building it, it was the largest structure in the, city of Bo- in the town of Boston. It was 11 stories high with lumber from all over the country. The live oak came from Georgia, and this is a very dense wood that makes it's impervious to rot, and that is what framed it. And there's white oak and there's pine, lots of different kinds of wood. And it was actually built, initially launched to fight Algiers. I was gonna ask you, yeah. why did they build it? They built it in, a seven, uh, in 1793, Algiers declared war on the United States and started capturing American merchant ships in the Mediterranean. And the um, Congress authorized six frigates, and President Washington decided where they would be built and what they would be called. So one's built in Portsmouth, one in Boston, one in New York, one in uh, Baltimore, one in Norfolk, one in Philadelphia. And so they're building these vessels, and then the United States and Algiers make peace. I mean, it takes a long time to build these ships. They start in 1793, finished and 1795 make peace with Algiers, and we say, hey, it costs a lot to build these. Why don't we stop building? So they did stop building. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And then we go to war with France. Well, now we have to finish them. And so Constitution is finished in time to go to war with France, and then it does fight in the war against France in 1798-99. That war ends, and then in 1802, it's sitting in the Charles River, gathering like uh, seaweed, and it's needed to go to war against Tripoli. So it is part of the American squadron against Tripoli, and in fact, in 1805, the treaty with Tripoli is negotiated aboard the Constitution. And Tripoli announced it was declaring war on the United States by sending some guys to cut down the flagpole in front of the consulate. And so as Constitution is the site of the peace negotiations, the ship's carpenter, knowing they're going to be making peace, is making a new flagpole for the consulate. And so we make peace with Tripoli, and then Constitution comes home. Then in 1812, the United States goes to war with Great Britain. And the war goes very badly for the United States initially. The 
you know, President, former President Jefferson said that we'll be able to take Canada in six weeks. All we have to do is march up there. And Henry Clay said the Kentucky militia by itself could take Canada in a month. And not only did the United States fail to take Canada, but in August, the United States surrendered Detroit to the British. And so things are looking badly, and Constitution in August of 1812 leaves Boston and is off of uh, Nova Scotia, and it encounters the British frigate Guerriere, which was a warship that had been patrolling the American coast, harassing ships, and Constitution and Guerriere fought a half-hour engagement, which completely destroyed Guerriere. Constitution was practically untouched after this half-hour battle. In fact, during the battle, the captain of Constitution told the carpenter to inspect the damage when there was a brief lull in fighting, and he, the carpenter looked over the sides and said the cannonballs were bouncing off. And someone shouted, huzzah, her sides are made of iron. Uh-huh. Huzzah. Huzzah. <laughs> and the ship comes back to Boston with great celebration. The captain of Constitution was Isaac Hull, and in fact, it was his cousin, General William Hull, who had surrendered Detroit a month earlier. So Constitution comes back. Now, bear in mind, the British Navy had been fighting for about the last half century against the French, uh, against the Spanish, and in about 500 engagements, they had lost, I think, four times. Now, Constitution encounters Guerriere and defeats her, and over the next few months, the United States fought a series of engagements, single ship combat with the British, and they win all of them. And all with how many with Constitution? Well, Constitution in December encountered the Java off the coast of Brazil. The Java, another British frigate in better shape than Guerriere, and this time commanded by William Bainbridge, and once again, Constitution wins. In fact, during the battle, the um, Java had shot out Constitution's wheel. So the cap- Captain Bainbridge had no way to steer, so he sends Marines below, and the rudder is moved by a rope, ropes on either side, on the larboard side. Now we call it the port side and the starboard side, the right side. And the, um, you know, he didn't want the enemy to know he didn't have a wheel, because if you don't have, don't have a wheel, you can't steer. So he would yell down, larboard, starboard, and the Marines would tug on the rope on that side so the ship could steer. And after the battle, having defeated the Java, he sends a crew aboard Java to cut out its wheel and install it on Constitution, Ooh. which they do. So I have a couple, an observation and two questions. Yeah. Observation, it's the, it's the seven, 1790s. When it's and when, Alge- when they yeah. have, It's surprising to me that the, uh, America is projecting its influence that far that early. Well, the thing is, the Americans are trading in the Mediterranean. They had been trading in the Caribbean, and they're selling codfish in the Mediterranean, in Italy, Spain, places where uh, until Vatican II, if you were Catholic, you could not eat meat on any Friday. So in those countries, people could not eat meat on Fridays, so therefore they ate a lot of fish. And we produce a lot of codfish here. Uh, Joel Barlow, who is an American diplomat, knowing that it was troublesome to go into the Mediterranean because you're liable to be captured by the Algerians or the Tripolitans, said that these Yankee captains would sail into the mouth of hell on a rumor that the devil was going to convert to Catholicism. So they're selling their codfish, but they're also buying wine, cheese, olives in the Mediterranean. 
So it's really not so much projecting influence or power as their merchants are there trading. And Algiers, and actually in 1785, the British government, having recognized American independence, tells the Algerians, hey, you want to look out for this new flag because Britain paid Algiers a million uh, pounds every year to leave British ships alone. France paid them a million leaves every year to leave French ships alone. And so Algiers looked for other people to attack. And huh. here, you know, we had been protected by the British flag, and British, Britain says, hey, they're no longer protected by our flag. So Algiers started capturing American ships, and the problem for the United States was we didn't have any money to either pay them or build a navy. So building the Constitution is part of a strategy to um, protect American trade. A million bucks doesn't seem like that much to—a million dollars doesn't seem like that much to get left alone. No, it doesn't. And actually, we would benefit more. However— uh, Thomas Jefferson thought that was wrong because he thought that would encourage them. And he thought we, he, he, he said we should um, basically teach them a lesson. He ah, said, okay. convince them. He said the only argument that they will understand. Okay. And in 1801, when Jefferson becomes president, he immediately says, We're changing our policy. We're not going to pay them. We are going to fight them. And sends an American ship, actually, the Enterprise, to the Mediterranean. And it encounters a Tripolitan ship. And when the Tripolitan captain asks if we're going to give us, tri if we're going to pay tribute, he says, yes, with gunpowder and cannonballs. Ah. And why did the Constitution tend to win? Is it a better built ship? It is, is it a better manned ship? Well, it is both. It's very well built. These frigates were built very well. In fact, um, one of the ships, you know, we make peace with Algiers and there's no longer a reason to finish them. So one of them we actually wind up giving to the day of Algiers to thank him for uh, making peace with us. And he says, send over more shipbuilders. And in the 1780s, John Adams remembered in France, an American ship came into Le Havre and people gathered to look at it. And the French minister of the Marine said, the Americans will be the world's greatest maritime power because you can build better ships than anyone else. And also the crews are very well trained and they, did have, we did have a tradition of well-trained sailors. It becomes an argument about why is it? And actually, in, during the War of 1812 and 1814, the American, some American ships are bottled up in New London, Connecticut. There's a British blockade. And one of them was the, the Macedonian, a ship the United States had captured from the British. And so the, and, and the British had captured one of our ships. And they say, Actually, they say the Macedonian has its sister ship in the British fleet. Why don't we do this? You guys send a crew with a Macedonian, and we'll have a British crew on the ship that the British still control, and then we'll see. Is it the fact that your ships are better, or is it the crews are better? And they're planning a duel between these two vessels, and they're negotiating over how to do it. And finally, the president, President Madison, hears they're planning to do this, and he forbids them to have a duel with these two ships. But it really was the craftsmanship because they knew they couldn't build enough ships to fight the entire British Navy, which had about a thousand ships in it. So their, our vessels had to be strong enough to defeat a smaller enemy, but fast enough to get away from a bigger one, which is what they were. And so they're very fast ships. The British also said we had overgunned them. That is, there were too many cannon aboard that they really weren't frigates. They were line of battleships in disguise. And is that cheating? 
The British thought so. (laughs) It's a war. Of course. course. And they thought we weren't very sportsmanlike. Just as at Bunker Hill, we targeted the officers because... And notice I'm saying we. As yeah, we I was did. Like we won the, yeah, we we won won the, the first yeah, game we, of the we World really Series, them too. A lesson. <laughs> All right. Uh, Boston's not America's hometown. That's Plymouth, right? That's what Plymouth says. Yeah. So what can we call Boston? I mean, the kind well, of— Well, I don't know. We can call it our home city. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Oh. But, you know, con- the, I, I would invite people to visit the Constitution Museum, which is free—they expect a donation to come in to help support them, but— they have terrific interactive things. You can swab the deck, you can get on a mast, and you can also visit the ship. They realized back in the 1970s that the ship was crammed with artifacts and they needed a better way to display them. So they built the museum then, which also has a terrific library, but it's wonderful things for kids to do. You feel like you're there and you really immerse yourself in this history and then get to see um, the ship, where you talk to active duty sailors. I mean, this is what they're, they're assigned, out of boot camp, to come aboard Constitution, usually if they're good with talking to people and telling the stories of the ship. So terrific sailors aboard who are really doing their duty by presenting the ship. It is the official United States ship of state. Are they good at making you understand what life aboard one of these things is like? It's not, not a lot of fun, especially during a battle. Like, oh, it yeah. must have been... Deafening. It must have been. You know, a lot of these guys go deaf because, you know, you hear the one gun at 8 o'clock every morning and then at sunset and it's very loud. You imagine, you know, 20 of them going off simultaneously. In fact, during one battle between the United States and the um, Macedonian, the um, Macedonian sees this wall of flame on the United States, and they think that the ship is on fire, and they uh, cheer. Yeah. And then they feel their ship just rock because it's hit with a broadside. They, so it was the guns. Uh, there were so many guns yeah. sh- and shooting when, so much flame, they thought it was on fire. Yeah, and during the battle between the uh, Chesapeake and the Shannon off Boston Light in uh, the summer of 1813, people wa- watched from the beaches in Nahant and the beaches in Nantasket, and they could hear it all around the city. You know, a couple of years ago, my sons and I were walking in the Blue Hills, and it happened to be around noon on President's Day, and we could hear the guns from Constitution firing their 21-gun salute to President Washington. So they are extraordinarily loud, and if you're right there, the sailors now when they fire off the guns, they wear ear protection because it is such a so loud. So the one gun, is that an actual original old cannon or a modern gun? It's, It's been refit. And most of the guns aboard are replicas, um, and they all have the GR because they were George Rex. Some of them were captured British guns. And in fact, in 1976, when Queen Elizabeth II came aboard, she saw these cannons that have GR, and she said to her husband, Philip, when we get home, we must talk to the Minister of War about these foreign arms sales. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, Why do they fire all their guns at once, son? Is the only thing I can think of is if, if you shoot a couple of them, the boat rocks back and your aim is off. So you, you would shoot them all at once while everything's kind of level. Yeah, and you're either trying to aim for the mass, that is if the, your, boat, your boat's rocking anyway in the waves. So when it's rocked up, you're going to fire then and hopefully take out the mass. Okay. If you're even, you'll fire to hit the hull. And if you're down, the boat, the balls are just going to go into the water. So it requires a certain degree of precision to know when to order the guns to fire. And you, the idea is you do fire a broadside, basically to disable the other ship. 
And it's also really good if you can sail in front of the other vessel because if the vessel is sailing toward you, it doesn't have any guns in the bow. And it might have some one or two guns in the stern, but the real force is along the sides, along the broadsides. So that would be the way of fighting, is firing the broadside to try to shatter the other boat's hull or take down its masts, and which is how Constitution takes out the Guerriere, by one by one taking down its masts. With straight-on straight on cannonballs, or do they shoot uh, chains and things? Yeah, they have uh, balls. They look kind of look like dumbbells that they would fire out, or chains that would wrap around. And the real damage that's going to be done isn't going to be you're hit with a cannonball, but the ball hits the wood on the ship and causes a hundred splinters to fly out. And it's like shrapnel yeah. that you're using, you know, which is why during a battle, they would uh, also tuck the um, hammocks into the netting along the gunnels of the ship. They'll, if you go aboard the ship today, you'll see along the sides, they have netting and that's where you would tuck the um, hammocks. And also they would man the pump so that they would keep wetting the deck so that sparks wouldn't set the boat on fire, which is something that could very likely happen. And the men typically would strip down to their, their, just their pants because it's very hot too. They're under the decks firing these guns, the deafening noise, and each gun crew was responsible for their gun and the one across. Of course, you're only going to be using the one facing the right. enemy. That's right. Huh. How long would it take them to reload and fire? They could do that within about a minute. A well-trained gun crew, because, and they know it is uh, very much everyone does his job. They know what their role is. You have to um, sponge out the gun to get out any embers that might have been left over. There's a screw also to clean out the barrel, and then you put in the charge and tamp it down, and then you light it and fire it. So it's a process you go through, and this is why they would drill the men at their guns uh, so that they would be ready to do this. And sometimes gun crews were well-prepared and sometimes they weren't. And the um, British believed the reasons the Americans kept winning the battles is they thought most of the American sailors were actually deserters from the British Navy, which wasn't true. Uh, but it was uh, comforting for the British to think, well, the real reason they're beating us is there are guys right. who left. And when you go to the museum, do they go through this process of They do, yeah. You can actually do the sponging, the firing oh, yeah? and all, yeah. So you, you, is it a muzzle operation? You have to back the cannon out of the— You would actually have to. And the cannon is on uh, ropes with— um, you know, so you would have to pull it into position because to load it, you have to have the cannon pulled back enough so that you can get, get around it, the front. loaded from the muzzle and yeah. not from the breech. And another problem is if the guns get too hot, they're going to explode. And in fact, in the 1840s, the United States built a new warship, and they had a huge gun called the Peacemaker, and they had a party on the Potomac River to show it off. The president was there, the secretary of the Navy, members of the Senate, of the Congress, and it was a great event. And then... The crowd wanted them to fire the gun one more time. The captain was a little reluctant, but agreed, and the gun exploded. And it killed the Secretary of Navy, Secretary of State, barely missed killing the president. You don't hear much about that. You don't hear much about the USS Princeton and this disaster, and it's probably one reason they don't have parties like this anymore on the Potomac. One more detail before I ask a couple qu another question about the, the museum itself. So they, <clears throat> they initiated the the shot with a fuse, like lighting it? They didn't pull a lanyard? And how did they get the fuses to go off at the same time? 
Well, everyone would be trained. I mean, this was part of the training is so that, yeah, and if they weren't well-trained, it wouldn't go off. So yeah, so giving the order to fire, giving all of the orders simultaneously and then firing simultaneously, I mean, that is something that does require precision. Yeah, I would just think that a fuse would be um, kind of a variable thing and not exact. It would have them cut to the same length and then you would have a lanyard to light it. There's actually one story about no, the ill-fated Chesapeake. Um, actually, in 1807, the British capture it, or actually disable it off the coast of the United States. It wasn't prepared to, you know, they're expect, not expecting any hostilities until they reached the Mediterranean and hadn't even been able to fire a salute to Mount Vernon, which ships always did. It made its way from Washington down to Norfolk and then was sailing out, and the um, captain... Uh, realized that they were going to have to surrender. They were a British ship ordered them to stop, and then fired. And before Const, uh, Chesapeake had fired a shot, um, Captain Barron had ordered it surrendered. But before he did that, one sailor went to the stove and got out a coal from the stove and ran to his gun and fired it. Huh. They fired one gun because he felt. They had to do this, and he didn't know that up on the deck, Captain Barron's ordering the white flag raised, they're surrendering. Uh, and this was a disaster. We've been talking about the high points, the Guerriere, the um, uh, fight with the Java, the fight with the Macedonian. There also had been some low points, which I suppose make these wars inevitable. So you talked about Port Starboard. It used to be Larboard Starboard. Larboard. Tell them why they had to change it from Larboard to Port. Okay, they had to change it from larboard to port because with the advent of steam engines, it becomes too loud, and you couldn't understand the yeah. difference. If someone yells larboard, yeah. you didn't know that they say hey, larboard. Hey, did you say larboard or starboard? Starboard, larboard. So they said, well, call that port because that's the side closer to port, and starboard because the stars shine on that side. So I looked up larboard, and it's the side of the ship which the cargo was loading. So it's I got you. Uh, that makes larder. Sense. Larder. I guess. Yeah, does that yeah. make sense? That does make a great deal of sense. They don't say larder, but that's my connection. Yeah. And uh, it was the side of the ship. That's right. Which it was loaded, changed yeah, to larboard. because it's the side next to the dock. Yeah. All right. Boy, I, you really uh, made me want to go and get up, up close and personal to the USS Constitution Museum and see the thing. Is it open all the time? It is open seven days a week. Yes. All winter long? All winter long. I think the hours are from 10 till 4, um, 10 till 5. Uh, had I known, I would have checked. But yeah, and USSConstitutionMuseum.org. Yeah. They never, ever, ever fire a full broadside, right? They don't have the guns. No, to they do don't that. have the guns. But that would be something, wouldn't it? That would be. would be. Very uh, if that ever happens, I hope you contact me so I can see it. I would hope so, yeah. A lot of smoke, too. Wow. Imagine being on the receiving end of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we think of the, the folks and the shooting side. Yeah. Imagine being on the receiving oh, yeah. side with the chains whipping oh, through yeah, the masts. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And the rigging. Thank you very much, Bob Allison, Robert Allison, professor and chair of Department of History, Suffolk University. Those kids, that school is lucky to have you. USS Constitution Museum, Board of Trustees, and you're part of this uh, Rev 250, which celebrated events, which commemorated events, That's right. uh, ramping up to the American Revolution. And maybe they'll do it again next year. We hope so. Well, we'll, we'll be doing other things. Check out our website, revolution250.org. Revolution250.org. Thank you so much for making the trip into our humble studios oh, thank here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And we'll hope to have you back. It's WBZ. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.